She was your mother. Well, you can just get on a plane before us working folk. Oh, listen to this. What do you got three over here? You're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that breaks down every episode of The Sopranos one at a time. Today we're talking about episode two of season three, Proshai Levushka, or Goodbye Little Livia. Air date was March 4th, 2001, written by David Chase, directed by Tim Van Patten. HBO synopsis, Tony's concerns that his mother will rat him out to the feds expire when she literally does. Later, Janice arrives to arrange the funeral, which takes a bizarre turn. Title, Proje Levushka, means, we learn from Svetlana, farewell, little Livia. The scene where Carmela and Tony and Svetlana do a shot together so is good. etched in our minds because of the importance of the three of them and what you know what will happen. Uh, white caps without saying anything more than that. That's just a very uh, ominous scene, the way it's lit and everything, if they knew what was going to happen, especially. The 360-degree disorienting spiral shot that we start with, we see Gabagool, we see Tony's leg, and then to Tony's body on the floor of the kitchen... The stylistic decision to play that sequence in reverse was elegantly explained by Autopsy. I'm going to quote him for a second. He said, A characteristic of these most recent works is that they build upon the earlier works, but also deconstruct and depart from the previously established conventions. So up to this point, we're used to the visceral realism, but in this sequence, that chain is broken. Right. But Mm -hmm. it's okay because it's the way the show separates itself from those that came before it while tastefully and artfully paying homage to that. What was your individual reactions to the rewind scene? I hate that sound in general. Just personally, I don't like the sound of something rewinding, but it's so crazy when I watched it again to to dissect it and then knowing the like double layer, because he always, when he uses it, I'm like, oh, he's just using it to show it. But it's it's layered like as a like paying tribute to the Godfather or something else. And then even when he's coming down the stairs and you still hear it, it's because Meadow's rewinding the movie. Like everything always makes sense. He's not just showing off. The episode starts with an explosion. Yeah. yeah. So th- this whole episode starts off with a bang was, was very, because you from the transition of that, you're not sure seeing the blood, Tony on the ground, what happened? Or I had initially thought that him reading the news about the garbage truck explosion caused the panic oh, attack. Yeah, yeah. Did you guys at all ever think he was dead? No, but just because of the, we're too new and into the story. Do you think but, anyone thought that? Because there were some people that thought yeah, that maybe was like he was dead. Yeah, like a theory about Patsy yeah. having done the deed or whatever, uh, followed through on his like botched attempt or his like mock attempt. Mm. But um, the observation, uh, there's an observation I had about Meadow watching a movie in reverse too. It was a nice but very rare bow that were given. You know, kind of like, okay, like making fun of yourself or whatever you want to call it. I'm going to jump right into this because I know you're excited about it. We're just going to move right to Noah. Before, I just want to say one thing to establish. I want to establish something at the outset with Noah. It's something that Tony powerfully states. He says, I believe he says it to Carmela, that he's going to protect Meadow at all costs till the day he dies. And while what he says to Noah is certainly racist and bigoted, it's somehow seemingly bigger than that because it's a father protecting his daughter, however inelegantly he may do it. You disagree? It begs the question, you know, how do you define racism? And if Tony has an issue with his daughter dating a black man, is that racist? Of course. And is that any better or worse than the full scale of racism? 
it's it's almost it's a hidden modern day and something that probably rings true to today like you you can be not racist in a, a high level but have an opinion like that that if put in a corner you're you're racist i went on a vic dive about italians and racism which is wild if you actually think about it and i was thinking about it too like how why are we you know if if the circumstance where you know nancy died they had to do this why are we also meeting his meadows half african-american boyfriend this episode like is that really that important and i think it is because it ties how close tony is livia's son to a t like that's her opinions of of black guys and you know he even mentions like if my sister's ever brought home like a black man so it just reminded me that like everything about tony is you know you are your parents influence in some way so it was just like doing that and even carmela later will be like well he comes from a place and a time and meadow's like no he doesn't that would be the grandparents and then in italy like you know italians do come off more racist because we're way more emotional it, like we're very loud and and that, there's like a whole truth to people thinking italians are really racist towards black people and it's like if you think about it in italy everyone even cities and provinces they've all been fighting for a long time and like if i'm from another providence like you're like a stranger and a foreigner from we're both from italy that's how they still feel and no one's kind of made a like a mannerism of how we should act around other people in italy people will just say whatever they want so and my mom didn't teach us italian because her dialect is so different from if you go like three hours to the left this character leading up to this episode has done some horrible things he's killed people and it's interesting that this scene made me the most uncomfortable and I think that we'll see, and you guys can agree within this season, there's a lot more realism to how awful these characters are. And you, you get to see what we've enjoyed as a character. It's, man, Tony's racist? That changes my perspective of him a little bit, even if there's a nature or nurture foundation behind it. And maybe we'll see a little bit of that in uh, The Many Saints of Newark, where we'll understand where some of this racism comes from i had a couple of problems with noah i wanted to like noah because i'm all about that like you know 21st century stuff but why he skip past tony and go straight for the lavender line personally i would pay much more deference to the father especially on his turf um it just to me it seemed like he was super casual and dismissive of meadow's dad and i'm curious if you guys saw that as awkward I thought it because Noah has confidence. He's he's smart. He likes himself. He's like a very secure person. He wants to say how he feels. I mean, he says, fuck you to Tony Soprano. Yeah. Like, he's not insecure and uncomfortable whatsoever, wherever he is. That's yeah. why he drives me crazy. That's a good point. If he had been a little bit more respectful or had reached out to introduce himself, you think Tony may have reacted a little differently? He wouldn't have reacted differently, but I was just kind of taken aback that it's the first time you're meeting your girlfriend's dad in his house, walking out of his bathroom, and you just go into this, like, soliloquy on modernity. Yeah. Uh, I was like, whoa, know your audience much, you know? <laughs> My question is, why did Meadow bring him home in the first place? That, that's, yeah. And the only answer I can say, putting myself in her situation, was she was trying to show off that, like, she has a nice house or, like, you know, and he thought he might not be home. Because if she liked this boy, 
we can watch it at my house. It's not that far. And like, hopefully what? my dad won't be home. Why for is this he home hour. in the middle of the day? That was you kind know? of a weird Or also if she knew he was going to give him a hard time because she looked really worried, like you said. Like he knew, she knew uh, Tony would have a problem with him. So Some of the Reddit stuff I looked at was a lot of that question. Why was Meadows so surprised that Tony would react this way? Yeah. Did she want she that result? She wasn't surprised. She looked nervous and she said he's just a friend, okay? Like she already prefaced it. There's a quote from Noah. People say Hawks made the genre with Scarface, but Cagney was modernity. That was a reference to the 1932 film Scarface directed by Howard Hawks, not to be confused with the 1983 film of the same name that was directed by Brian De Palma and penned by Oliver Stone. I wanted to point that last part out for those listeners that haven't listened or had a chance to listen to the great conversation with Louis Lombardi. A lot of people don't know that Oliver Stone wrote Scarface. Well, Cagney with uh, Public Enemy, that's David Chase's favorite movie, apparently. Yeah. So do you think that was Chase speaking there? Hmm. I don't think he would use that as his proxy, just me personally, but maybe, yeah. I feel like it was a very college-sounding thing. You know, later in a later season, we're not giving anything away by saying this, but Carmela basically, like, calls out Meadow by saying, just because you read a bunch of books in college, yeah, you think you're, you know, you're smart or whatever. That's what that sounded like. It sounded like that guy in, uh, in Good Will Hunting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? How do you like, like them apples, guy? You're going to regurgitate the whole thing, or do you have any original thoughts of your own kind of thing? The Meadow, she says she's going to go get the Bare Naked Lady CD, which triggered this cascade of thoughts in my brain about music from that era. Um, first of all, how do you guys feel about the Bare Naked Ladies, or did you feel anything? I felt something, because it was they were everywhere for a second with that one-week hit. Yeah. It, that time period was such an interesting part of music, because you had that uh, blend of MTV video. and. So what kind of music were you guys into during this time period? Let's go back to 2001 for a minute. What are some of your favorite songs from that era? I mean, I was a jazz nerd, so the only pop stuff I would listen to was R&B, so... That was when Alicia Keys' Fallen came out, which uh-huh. I was, like, obsessed with. Yep, I have that on my list. Mary J. Blige, Family Affair, and that stupid Lifehouse song that was number one. Hanging on by t- a moment. Yeah, because it was all my girlfriend's songs with their boyfriends. <laughs> I like, love that I song. hated that song. It's, it's aged well, though. I listen. Right in that guy. That guy's got, is that a real voice, or is that a, like, is is that a dramatic voice. acting this voice? Is a real voice. See, me and my the hippie youth was listening to classic rock and underground hip-hop. I think the most mainstream thing I was listening to was Outkast, but they yeah, I had uh, Miss Jackson and So Fresh, So Clean from that year. Well, see, I was upset at that album, thinking that the Atlians and Spody Doty, Topolicious Angel, and the original stuff was so much better than the 2000 work of theirs. Huh? Interesting. So, what were your, what were your, what songs? Give me one song oh, that, I would, that I wouldn't know. From like. Underground hip hop, or like, what were you listening to? Two thousand one. I was listening to like Living Legends, Hieroglyphics, Jurassic Five. I know Jurassic Five um, is. Yeah, so it was a lot of that. No hmm. Nelly Furtado. Maybe a little bit. You remind me came out that year. That yeah, was Usher. that was Usher's such a good album. Dido, thank you came out that I year. I know, I know. Incubus Drive was a song that I was into. It's just so interesting how eclectic the genres used to be on yeah. the radio back then. I was looking through it. Like, there was a—it was still definitely very pop and and urban, so to speak. But there was, like, Faith Hill on the charts. Like, country, everything was all being played and competed in different genres. Now it's all the same. Yeah. It's literally all that the same. That is true, because you had a lot of poppy stuff, like yeah. Lone Star, Rascal yeah, Flatts, ran- but they were all, it was all over the place. Crossing yeah. over into that. Like Chumbawamba, like all these random things. And Tub now, thumping? Yeah. Jay Z Hova came out this year. Now it's Moby all. and Gwen, Southside. 
Yeah. That was a good song. That was, I Poppy. forgot about that one. Yeah. And I was really into house music during this era. Really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> were you time. DJing your I own was DJing, stuff? Yeah. yeah. My, my roommates were DJs. Making his own mixes. I was big into dance music. My favorite DJ was actually a Danish DJ that I told you about, Sandra Kleinenberg. Final Livia sequence that cost $250,000 of post-production resource. Yeah. It was bad, in air quotes, but was it really that bad? Yes. Yes. I disagree. It was so bad. It was so hard to watch. Was it, though? Yeah. They didn't even, like, cut her hair out correctly. So, I found it humorous. It looked like me trying to make a meme. It literally reminded me that I could watch her on loop and be entertained. The alternative is to not have her on at all. Yeah. And that would be sort of, like running scared as opposed to the alternative which is you make the best of it and you spend $250,000 and you acknowledge her with her best of hits well it would have I mean that's a good point to make I think it would have been really really hard for all of us not to hear like even that scene he wrote that and spent all that money just to have her sit there and have that like confrontation with Tony it was so needed to then have the rug pulled up from underneath him and us as the viewer that she dies the next day. But it's it seemed forced to me to use that with a collection of like they sat in the writers' room and said, "Here are all the sound bites and video bites that we have of Livia," and you know, let's piece together some sort of Mad Libs argument from what we have from before. Do you think he got a refund a little bit on this because of? some of the backlash or because the quality was so horrible? No, look, they could have retroactively gone back and fixed it, but they left it. And the point is that they were paying, they were paying respects to her the best way they could. And it was a big deal. Like, uh, they lost her. Like, and that's why yeah. all these foes get introduced in this episode, which we're going to outline in a few minutes. So I read that Chase was inspired to do this by seeing the same effect used in The Gladiator, the 2000 movie, mm. uh, with Oliver Reed. And I didn't have enough time to look into what that what particular scene was. I'm assuming it was a situation where they needed to show the actor that was had been deceased. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I thought it was funny that uh, David Chase had an affinity to Gladiator. A little subtlety on this will leave the Livia CGI behind. Tony's choice of audiobooks for Livia was interesting. He comes in with The Horse Whisperer and Omerta, which were both contextually on point. He's trying to get her to not testify against him. That's hilarious. And then he's dropping it over the head with the code of honor via Omerta. I just thought it was I didn't catch that. super fucking subtle. Quick mention of Tony in the garden sequence before he learns about Livia. That was Godfather 1 all over the place. No one's really addressed that, but I saw Don Corleone playing in the garden with his grandson in that moment. And it was kind of a beautiful little thing. It was in the dark, obviously. One is in the daytime, and there's more motion and whatever. But he was outside in the garden having a moment... And then he finds out his mother dies. Do you think the water splashing on himself was ad lib or? Knowing what we know now about how everything is like very by the script, don't fuck with the script. It's possible, but it was the sprinklers what triggered the Godfather for me. I think there was like some water or something going on in the garden with the grandson. I can't remember off the top of my head. I thought it was like a cleansing. Like there's no more fires to put out. There was a literal fire in the yeah. first scene. Yeah. And, he, and he always goes outside. Yeah. No Wait. more fires yet because he's going to. True, true, true. But I like that. I like. But that. he's always going outside his home when he's thinking. Like he's going to sit by the pool and reflect. Like he's outside the bowl. That backyard gets like high little... usage, like mm-hmm. James Harden. He's drawn. <laughs> 
Um, Tony pulls up to Livia's house driving Carmela's car. Uh, I really, really love this sequence, the color palette and the framing and the use of light to cast a shadow across his face. For those that want to check out the real house, it's 55 Gold Street in Verona. I want to go there because I want to look down that street uh, at night. The shot where he's looking down and he sees the children in the foreground, very layered and impactful stuff, at least to me. Meadow, okay, this, you're going to have to indulge me on. This is my, this was going to be my last call, but I'm just going to get it out of the way now. The Robert Frost poem, Meadow breaking down the Robert Frost poem. Real quick, I love this poem. Um, I fell in love with the show over again because of their use of this poem in this episode and in this kind of self-deprecating way. So this is a poem about dilemma, about whether to stop in the woods and appreciate the moment to succumb to it or to do what the rest of the world is coaxing you toward, right? So relentless motion and movement towards action, progress, lest we fall too far behind. That classic stop and smell the roses thing. That's this poem. I don't necessarily buy that it's a signifier of eventual death, but I'm open to that. I think that it could be like the Holston scene, right? It could be one way or the other. But I think that Robert Frost more or less said it wasn't necessarily about that. The part that is really striking to bring it back into Sopranos is Meadows saying, gotta go. To me, that was her own version of living out the poem. I can't hang out in the wilderness with you. I've got miles to go before I sleep. Mm. Be it with Noah, be it with Caitlin or whatever. She's got to get back to her thing. And I I thought about it and I thought about it and I thought about it. And today is when I realized, because I always, before you guys come, I always sort of like think, like, what is this? Like, what am I actually going to say about this? And it, that's when it occurred to me. She's basically doing the what the world wants us to do, which is to go fast. And AJ, for a minute, is stopping to think about it, and he's stopping to sit in the wilderness. And to me, that's what him looking over his shoulder means. That's what him going outside and saying grandma. It was just, a, this could be completely a reach, and it could be completely that's nothing. That's so interesting. That's how you, what you saw But that's what I took that. away from interesting. it. I'm with you on that. Did you know AJ was listening to Eyeless mm-hmm. by Slipknot, yes, which I was did. written about Marlon Brando? Who starred in The Godfather. When uh, Marlon Brando goes to see the mortician um, for what happened to Sonny Corleone, I hadn't seen that scene in a while. And damn, that shit is so powerful. So timeless. So well executed, man. The Mm -hmm. Godfather. Just amazing. That's so interesting you saw it that way. I want to watch that Robert Frost thing The Robert Frost thing? Well, Meadow. The Meadow was thing. She's like, I got to go. And then it goes to the black and white thing. Yeah. What did that mean to you guys? I I can see that now, but now, I mean, how I initially thought it was like, why is this scene even relevant? And why are we, because I think it's for me at least, which now I have to adjust because I believe what you're saying is true I I sold you my Kool-Aid. Yeah, you did a little. But I also feel like, you know, it's Olivia's dead and Tony's his son, AJ's Tony's son. And it's the first time we actually see AJ struggling with something. He's like, just tell me the answers so I can figure this out. And like throughout The Sopranos, we're reminded there are no answers. Everything means nothing. Nothing is real. White means death. So does black. Like there are no real answers. And AJ's like stuck on this. And Meadow is just wiser and gives him that advice. And I feel like it's like we're kind of seeing the chain of events of like first realizing like AJ's now starting to have his own thoughts of like struggle and problems that he has to deal with, like even literal homework ones. And like that's and then that the whole like grandma, that was like 
what the fuck? Why did they put that in? And I was like, is it afterlife? Because David Chase loves to like hint at surrealism. We see pussy up here. Was it pussy who was there? Like a ghost? Mm -hmm. Are there ghosts in the house? Like, is it about death or is it not? I have no idea. Is it about living your life and staying on your path or death or both? It means both. But I do think now what you're saying makes sense too. Even though technically black and white are not colors. Yeah. Any thoughts on the color of death being black or white? Like the, the poem doesn't mention black or white. It mentions snow. Right. Perception. Like yeah. it, if you think death is white, then I think you've got some optimism and you're thinking of that, that white light. If you're thinking it's black, then that's a very just literal morbid thought of death. Sick shit. Yeah. The mention of the poem is like next level shit. They're framing it in the context of AJ and Meadow having a brother-sister conversation. She's helping him with his homework. Uh, it's so intelligent on so many levels. So thank you for letting me like go there yeah. with Robert Frost, even though it took up literally 42 seconds of screen time. He's the other guy that does the two uh, roads diverge. Two roads diverge in the wood, and I took the one less traveled by, and it has made all the difference. Uh, quick cultural reference, Tony Hawk on the TV, that was when he broke records for the most number of revolutions, if I recall correctly, and I actually remember watching that. It was like a really cool thing. I remember it being it's like the X Games or early X Games, and it was like late at night, and he did, I don't know how many revol- revolutions. Two and a half. So the 900 is the 900. two and a half revolutions, yeah. which is um, divisible by three. But it's cool. They did the greatest skateboarder of the time and the greatest, the greatest television show of time. time. Yeah. Man, they, they know what's up. The canned... I'm so sorry to hear. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? That's a great line, and he delivers it so beautifully because he doesn't mean it. Like, he's saying it. It's almost like, say this like you don't mean it. That was the direction that he probably got, and he's like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? At least she didn't suffer. Uh, it's just, it's, 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 we're laughing. Someone's dead, and we're laughing. When you actually stop and, like, step back and think about that, last episode we talked about the New York high-cut shot and yeah. the Quantico. That's one of those moments where, like, there's a death, and we're laughing about it. Out loud. That's... Yeah. That's this was a great commentary on how funerals really are, or the experience of that. It's a very uncomfortable thing. You don't know how to act. You don't know what to say. And you end up saying all of these, at least she didn't suffer, or at least she's in a better place, or you know, she was so loved. And it, not, it, yeah. it's interesting that he's spun it in so many different reactions from some people getting really high before, some people being honest, some people being... Disingenuous. Uh, Janice... She didn't even want a funeral, Janice. But can't you come sit with your family during this stressful time? She was your mother. Well, you can just get on a plane before us working folk. Oh, listen to this. What do you got three over here? That exchange is brilliant. It, it's so good. So there's a bunch of scenes in this episode where Tony's in front of a TV, sipping, nursing a drink, and uh, watching the James Cagney movies. I think it's the, all the scenes are from from Public Enemy. I have never seen that movie. So You've never seen Public confession. Enemy? Neither have I. What? We were busy watching um, Love Actually. Uh, yeah. And Castaway. <laughs> and Star Wars. I feel like we owe it a view, especially if it's David Chase's, one of his favorite movies. I feel the like it's The scene kinda, with the pie to the face. Is, that in, was an homage. Yeah, that was, that like, was Boca. It's so... We're introduced to Ralphie, Ralph Cifaretto, for the first time. The camera spends a lot of time on him, disproportionate to the amount of time that you see with these new people that are kind of being introduced into this other family of Tony's as they're coming through, um, which tells you immediately that he's a surrogate to Richie and a key, a possible key figure. Um, 
I love how they go from like, sorry, sorry, sorry to straight business in the backyard. It's the show needs to do that to keep us interested. But like, it is really all about that more than it is anything else. Um, but we're immediately set up to not love this guy, yeah. you know, from his hair to the way that he, he's got a lot of balls just giving it to Tony. Again, this is the third character now, right? You've got Noah, you've got Jackie Jr. And you've got Ralphie just disrespecting the boss in an episode where his mother just died. I don't know. I'm I'm piecing this together as I talk to you guys right now, but there has to be something there to that. Like, what's going on? He normally doesn't collect this much disrespect. No. But with the knowledge that we have and the theory that we can validate that Ralphie was really the extension of Richie in so many ways, it was. It seemed like a forced spin. Like, we're going to make this guy a little bit of a well-dressed, sensitive guy, but he's still going to be a psychopath. Well, that's the thing. We meet him and he's crying. He's the only one that actually showed emotion and remorse to Tony, like, I know how you feel. But he talked about his own mother. Of course, but he's still crying. Like, those are real tears. It was a good intro. And I like the choice to have like a, kind of not a high angle, but sort of just like a, it's like a camera's like sitting on his shoulder angle. Like, this is the guy that we're going to be spending a lot of time with now going forward. That hair color, the choice of his hair color, just like a cheap in between red brown is just so good and, ima- and joey pants like he has to get a lot of credit you think about all the tertiary characters of the show they don't have a lot of history and joey pants alone he's he was popular around that time so this was a significant addition to the show the matrix yeah he's been in a lot of features the way his character is reminds me more of the old mobster like public enemy characters attitudes so yeah. you should watch the old mobster ones just because they ralphie's actual like demeanor and behavior is more like those than the other mobsters and sopranos so robert fornaro who's eugene pontecorvo in the show um listeners who are watching it for the first time will not know who he is but he's introduced in this episode as well briefly he was originally supposed to be ralphie no. but it was before they got uh, Joe Pantoliano. Once they knew that Joe Pantoliano was going to sign, he was signed on to do it, they swapped him. Robert Funaro's mentioned in the credits of this episode because they had signed him, but then they decided to not utilize him. And that's how Eugene Pontecorvo came to be. I went ahead to the next episode and I, until now, didn't realize that he's standing next Fortunate to Fortunate son. Yeah. 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 He's an important character, as we're going to come to know. And he's in this episode for a minute. He actually is the guy in this later scene where uh, Ralphie's been instructed to, like, lay off, but he goes and takes care of some guys with baseball bats. Robert Frunaro, the actor, who's Eugene Pontecorvo, he's the guy with the bat. And it's because they had to do, like, this little bait and switch. A lot of the palace intrigue. Um, meanwhile, at Cosarelli's, okay, which is... Um, the mortician. Is that what the word is? I'm like, it's a funeral home. It's like a, he's the... Funeral home director. Funeral home director. Janice mentions the Mexican Day of the Dead, which is a multi-day Mexican holiday where families pray for and remember friends and family who have died and try to guide them into the afterlife. Fun personal fact. I have a weird, morbid obsession with this career. And if I was to go back to work or go back to school and study something, I'd be very interested in... Um, afterlife and uh, I can't tell if you're funny you said that I can't tell if you're crying wolf right now no no I'm very serious like I I I feel like I have uh, an innate sensibility to these situations and if there was ever a career where I'd I'd felt like I was most self-serving to society it would be this or something that I feel like I'd be comfortable with like I've had opportunities to like go and visit and see if it was something I'm interested in I just haven't 
done it yet. But like you would actually like take care of like pre- like prepare bodies for like viewings. and well, stuff? Well, so nowadays like uh, a lot of it's more cremation, and it's really the business of real estate and working with people in a really rough situation. So you're you're organizing the event, you're selling the the placement of their body and and the real estate of that and. Uh, helping people get through some really tough times. But, yeah. After this podcast is over, we should go into business because when I dropped out of my jazz conservatory, I signed up for mortician school. Did you? Yep, and I took a few courses and then I couldn't do it. Yeah, but I, I, I could go get it, it and we can do it together. It would. It really? takes some certification, yeah. um, there's a, a couple d- years worth of work, mm-hmm. and there's specialized schools for it. I love that you didn't think I was serious, too. So... <laughs> Uh, Janice mentions the Mexican Day of the Dead, like we just talked about a moment ago, but then Tony's immediate response is... I don't want any of that California bullshit. People can drink, they can eat some gorgonzola, they want to yak about my, that's their business. The delivery is just fantastic. Um, Just going to quickly mention Ray Curdo. He's wearing a wire. Tony's foes are piling up by the scene here, just as Livia departs. This is what I was talking about earlier. So... Janice is already digging for treasure. She didn't waste any time when she got back from Seattle. Why do you guys think Livia is only keeping Tony's stuff around, though? What's that all about? It's the Italian son. Really? Yeah. Even if the mother doesn't love the son? Or do you think that it's like I think a, he loves She, she loves, loves him. him, but it's like I'm the oldest, and then I have a younger sister and a brother, so it's the same. And I'm the barb, obviously. And my mom has more stuff about my brother than all of us. It's just like an Italian son thing. Like, oh, a daughter, another daughter. But the son. Okay. Do you have a favorite, Vic? Favorite what? Child. I'm closer to my oldest because I just know him. I love my oldest. Oh, my God. I wonder if I'm not the favorite. I do believe that parents do have favorites. Really? I am am enough into the parent game to be able to tell you confidently. Why wouldn't you be a favorite as a child? Because you're difficult or just because they're not... No, it's just I can't can't explain it. Like someone who's listening who's a parent will understand it, but like... Because they're more like you, you think? It's got nothing to do with that either. I don't want them to be anything like me. But yeah, I I definitely think the people that say there's no favorites, they're just lying. Wow. Yeah. Your parents definitely... They might not say it. It's not me. You, don't, you just do. It's human nature. Well, I know? hear a lot from friends or my sister having a second child. I didn't think I could love someone as much as I'd loved my first child until I had my second child. And, yeah, and there's a little too. bit of that. But Yeah, it's a, it's what you say. Yeah. Yeah. It's what you say. So 10 years from now, Vic's oldest is going to be listening to this podcast and run downstairs and be like, see? The next time I watch this show after this podcast will be with him. So, yeah. Yeah. So that'll, that'll be a lot of fun. Uh, the Wake. Junior leans in towards Livia's picture. It's almost like he's going to say something, but just as he's about to, Tony intercepts him. Any introspective or funny thoughts on what he was about to say to her? I think he was going to apologize to her. That's what I thought, too. Um, Back at the house for Janice's version of the Mexican Day of the Dead. So my favorite. It's a great scene, right? A quick observation, though. Every time Carm took a shot... We see an apparition, right? We see first pussy in the in the mirror, um, and then the man walking down the stairs and turning to go back up. Which is again, we're just being fucked with. Let's just call it what it is. But who was that man, and should he have a spinoff series? <laughs> I like that. 
Can you imagine a series where there's like every episode is a standalone episode of a random day in the life show of like a family or people. And in that episode, that man comes down the stairs and then turns around and goes back up. That's that's my series. I have a similar inspired series from that concept. I couldn't decide whether I'd call it rat reflections or reflections of pussy. And it's the entire third season of The Sopranos narrated by pussy. Haunted by his own demons. It's not heaven, it's not hell, it's purgatory. Who do you guys think it was? Do you think it was a mistake? Or do you think there was some sort of... I think it was meant to be like a ghost, yeah. Whose ghost, though? It was... I don't know if it was a ghost. I think it was to show that level of discomfort because the person came down, saw what he was about to walk into, and escaped because it was just too unbearable. Yeah. What the fuck was Christopher's speech about no two people? By far one of my favorite things about the whole series. Had to, That could not have been scripted, right? That was just... Gibberish. Flow. It was so good. Because it was a little existentialism. It was a little bit about the afterlife. It was a little bit of all the things we have no answers for. But he was also stoned out of his mind. So there was no validity to anything he was saying. You had asked earlier about uh, smoking weed and drinking. Smoking weed and doing cocaine are like two Don't, things yeah. that would never go together. Furio and and Adriana and Christopher, you're referencing what they were doing before the funeral. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, that is not at least at the same time. You would do one to counteract the other one. Like any rewatchable scenes in this one? Artie and Tony's confrontation outside I really liked. Artie was gonna go tell everybody. What would that have accomplished for Artie? Nothing, right? Nothing. I liked Carmela's speech at she was brilliant. That yeah, was you know what? A let's, real parenting moment. Let's take a moment. Well, are you talking about the speech or the speech where she says that Livia didn't want a funeral? Yeah, yeah. yeah. From beyond the grave, even. This is a woman who didn't want a funeral. You all, her children, you ignored her wishes. Only after she's dead, by the way. She didn't want a funeral. She didn't want a remembrance of any kind. Why? She didn't think anybody would come. She was like, I don't know if I'm being a good parent and protecting my kids or not, which I thought was like a really nice segue of like, you know, not projecting what she thinks to do or not do on her kids. But, you know, she's going to do what she feels. Did you have a rewatchable scene? The long drive away of the ambulance where Tony and Carmela show up as it's moving away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My favorite scene. The two children and the dog. It was... Yeah, it just, I kept watching it, trying to find some extra meaning to it. There is. It's a loaded scene. I'm, I'm telling you, those two children in the foreground, i th- thinking it was Janice and Tony as they were kids, kind of mm-hmm. watching them all, but they didn't look proportionally correct. But that's the thought that was going to my head. That's a great scene. I'm glad you said that. Uh, least favorite scene in this episode? I think the first scene, the fire, and or when they beat up that guy. I don't care. Yeah. Well, you need to see the guy get I beat up because you need true. to know that you need to know that Ralphie is playing baseball that's true ralphie's not fucking around ralphie wants to be capo of richie's crew what did you think about having a flashback already had a flashback of visiting tony's mother did we think that was like a little ridiculous you didn't need it it. you didn't need it no i i got up to go to the kitchen uh today when i was re-watching it again and I thought that it was somehow a, a, a same episode. episode. Same. Yeah. I'm like, what? am I on the wrong yeah. episode? 
But uh, use your thing. I think you said this last episode that sometimes viewers that haven't watched it or are like watching it in real time, again, like when it was airing week on a week in, week out basis and you had to wait a year between seasons, maybe you need to see that to remember that Artie had a confrontation with Livia. But we're looking at it from the standpoint of having seen the show 9,000 times. So it's a little <laughs> irritating. But when you sometimes you need that easy sort of hit you over the head blunt force trauma. But yeah, I... I'm with you guys. Um, Did any of you guys catch what the FBI guy listening was reading? It was a dummies book. You know, those like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dummies for internet. internet. I was like, did, what is he reading? Did you guys... It's okay to admit this. I, I, won't, I won't judge. Did you guys ever buy one of those four dummies books on any subject matter? Uh, I've been given a lot of those books. I have never bought them <laughs> <Whoa>. myself. <laughs> I sat in the Barnes & Noble a few times and read a number of those. Oh, it's okay to punch through it. Yeah. Uh, the person that gifted those books to you, like, are they still your friend? Yeah, they're like family members. Okay. Like, and they weren't ironic. They were like very well needed, I but feel, also like slightly it was painful. And yeah, hurtful. it's like, wow, you really know me that well, <laughs> yeah. huh? But now I feel like those books are kind of obsolete because of the internet. True. You know, now you can just Google it. Did you cliff note ever? Yes, big time. Big time. I, yeah, I went through, got, went through uh, four degrees worth of school, man. I cliff noted the fuck out of my way through that. <laughs> um, lessons learned from this episode? Everybody dies. Could a Netflix series be spun off on the basis of this episode, and what would it look like? I already gave you my shitty one. Do you guys have any others? I had Uncle Ben, the man, the myth, the rice. A a documentary on Uncle Ben. (laughs) Yeah. I had one more Netflix uh, called Wake Up, New Jersey, a series of funeral services of disliked deceased. In death comes truth and none of that California bullshit. None of that California bullshit is a great title. Mm -hmm. We finished way ahead of the game. I'm just going to read the last four lines of that Robert Frost poem. And then I'm just going to fade to black. (laughs) Or white. The woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. (laughs) 